Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and I'm here with my co-presenter Susie Rumble, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors, and our special guest Julia Alexander of Julia Alexander Interiors to talk through that significant first step for a designer in any client relationship, taking the brief. Any experienced interior designer will tell you the success or failure of every project lies in their ability to extract an accurate brief from their clients. It sounds straightforward enough, but many clients who begin work with a designer are unable to articulate what it is that they need and want. Often, they simply don't know, and in many cases, they're not aware of what is possible. So, where should interior designers begin in this process, and how do they determine what questions to ask their clients in order to gain the information essential to delivering that successful project? Welcome to the Interior Design Business. Taking the brief is a critically important subject, and I'm delighted to welcome Julia Alexander as our guest to explore it in more detail. Julia, before we begin, can you give our audience an insight into your design background? Yes. Hi, it's lovely to be here after listening to your podcast, to be invited on one. Thank you. I came from a corporate background originally before going into the interiors world. So it was a great background for setting up my own business, project management. I got a good understanding of marketing and sales and writing proposals. And now I work in residential design and I also stage properties for sale and rental for property owners and developers. I'm London based, so mostly work in London, but I do also do other projects outside of London, depending on the scope of the project. How long ago did you set up Julia Alexandra Interiors? About just over 10 years ago now it was, yes. Amazing. And never look back, obviously. Never look back, I love it. (laughs) Great. So the phone rings, it's a potential new client on the other end. What are the first questions you ask them? Do you want to go first, Susie? Yeah, okay, I can I can tackle that one. So the, the first thing we always try and find out is, is what actually is the project. Often it might be a, um, a property that they've seen, something that they're trying to buy, they may have exchanged on it, they may not have exchanged on it, or sometimes it's something that perhaps they've, they've been living in for some time, but um, a life event is causing them to rethink the space, they might be having a baby or, you know, something might be going on. Um, so we always try and find out, first of all, what the, what the project is. Um, and then the other thing that's quite important is to find out are we too late? In other words, has, has the thing started? Um, because I think, Julia, this might be your experience also that quite often um, interior designers tend to be brought in too late on projects and actually, you know, things are already underway and decisions have already been made. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a key question. And I, and it was on my list, sort of list of questions as well, is that who else is already involved? Quite often I'm brought in when there's already architects involved, they've already started looking at plans and Therefore, there might also be a team of builders involved. So you're sometimes fitting in with that team, which is also another interesting challenge because you have to then get to know not only the client, but the architect, how they work, how the builder works, and you're sort of in the middle of all these people. So that is also quite an interesting scenario that you sometimes have to work out if that is going to be the case. But I also think that the interior designer's way of taking a brief can be very different from that of an architect. Just to, to make the example we usually give people, if, if it, architects are kind of about the, the, the way the building sits in the landscape and the exterior of the building, we're much more interested in the minutiae of where someone's going to keep their shoes. Absolutely. And it's really interesting working that way because actually yesterday, 
uh, last week rather I was on a uh, zoom client meeting and we decided to completely move the joinery from one wall to another that the architect had planned and the client was like oh yes why don't we think of that because we look at things very differently to architects um but you know it's great having working with architects as well and getting their input it's it's both sides so definitely we do look at things very differently is it a question that the phone is ringing or is it very often that first contact comes via email you might get an email brief or I don't know, you just bump into somebody and they start giving you a brief because they find out you're an interior designer, Julia. For me, it's always by email first and a little bit by Instagram as well, through Instagram as well. But yeah, it's funny, it is usually by email. And then, I don't know, maybe it's now we've changed the way we correspond and then you sort of plan a phone call. That's how it tends to be for me. What about you, Susie? Well, we, we get a bit by email, but often it's a phone call. Often the phone rings out of the blue and it'll be someone on the other end of the line saying, you know, I've, I've, I've bought a house or I saw you on something or other, or, you know, I've seen your website or I've been following you on Instagram, whatever it might be. Um, you know, we've got this project. Um, I'd like to discuss it with you. And that's quite often how it kicks off. And then normally for us, we would say, well, actually, have you got any information about the building? You know, have you got any estate agents drawings you can send us? And then we normally get an email. And also that's part and parcel, obviously, of taking the contact details, because if the phone does ring, first thing you do is you make sure you get their telephone number because there's nothing worse than you know not doing that critical thing and then finding you can't call them back so that would be silly absolutely and then that's an important point because you actually do want to find out a lot about them so who they are and you know do they are they a family or do they have children do they have pets how how are they currently using the space why have they decided to take on this project um so all of those information all of that information is so critical but actually, we do something even more fundamental. The first thing I always do when I get a new client is Google them. Oh, I like that. <laughs> um, it's astonishing how much information you can find out just by Googling someone, if, particularly if it's someone who's, you know, fairly prominent in whatever their chosen field is. You know, there'll be articles about them and they may be on the boards of companies and you can get a lot of information just by, a, you know, 10 minutes assiduous search on the Internet can, can net you nuggets of gold, actually. And that first conversation, I guess, is important as well in, in starting to build a, a human relationship. You, you presumably you can pick things up from their tone of voice, the manner in which they speak, how they talk to you, all those kind of soft psychological things, Julia. It's total psychology. It really is. And the longer that you do it, I mean, I just remember at the beginning, it was all a bit more of a mystery. And now you're so used to how people talk about their brief, their home, um their project and also the sense of urgency like what stage they're at with it some people are quite stressed out already by the time they come to you um or are they just right at the beginning and they're just in the planning stage so all those sort of points you can you can pick up from the language from the way they talk um and from asking good questions and I think if you're asking the right questions it immediately makes you come across as being that safe pair of hands that they need for their project so if you're kind of listening carefully and you're you're asking those intelligent questions and perhaps listening around what they're saying rather than directly at what they're saying if i can put it that way um you know you'll come across as being an expert which is which is where we all we want to be positioning ourselves really yeah that's a great point susie because it is about the trust and you've got to gain their trust as well as taking the brief in in that short space of time because obviously they may be asking other people, sometimes they aren't, sometimes it's word of mouth and they want to come to you through recommendation, but they may also be, you know, comparing you to other people that they're calling up and they want to hear that you have understood them, that they can trust you, that you're an expert and you can definitely convey that in what you're asking them. Definitely, no, that's so true. 
presumably the, the goal of that first conversation is to to get a meeting with the client to to see the property absolutely without question that's that's always the first thing you know, within within five minutes hopefully of, of the conversation if it's going well i mean she's saying right well it would be great to come and have a look is there a way we can meet can you get hold of the keys yes no totally i agree the the first stage is is the, is the telephone meeting and then the second stage meeting them in person is is just so useful in terms of information that you can pick up and seeing body language and meeting them and just the way they take you around the, the site if you're able to go to site and the way that they talk you through the different rooms and it's, it's another level of deeper questioning that you can go to it's great it's it's not always so straightforward if it's a new build because sometimes you have to have them to the studio first off but actually that could be quite nice too because then they kind of they can see your setup and they can see that you know you're you're a, a serious professional um, and I think that's really important too so either way it can work but you're right Julia it's, it's about it's about looking at all those and, and quite a lot of the non-verbal clues the things that they're not saying how they're reacting to things um, it's just so key always a tricky subject but do you try to get an indication of budget in that first conversation yes and I, I was this is such a great question because I was thinking about it and I think maybe before I would have outright asked what is the budget but now first of all because there's a bit of creativity sometimes around budget because if they employ you and then you put some ideas to, to them that they hadn't thought of that they think they absolutely do need or something they can spend their money on that they do think they need to invest in um that can vary the budget a bit however what i find now is it's almost it's almost again a lot of this has become a bit more intuitive when you hear them talking about the project scope you know what they're doing you know who else is involved in the project um you tend to get a feel for what the budget is and how how they're talking about the project and i mean one question i do ask is where do they typically like to shop for furniture and homewares at the moment um so then i can understand what kind of style or budget there is but then i will probably take it take them to explore other different places they probably don't know about as well but it just helps give me a guide and another important question that is related to budget that i ask is how long do they want to stay there because sometimes actually <laughs> You know you can be quite surprised that they're doing so much work and they actually want to move in a couple of years and therefore you do need to be a bit more careful with the budget and look at it at a very different in a very different way so there's kind of different pieces of the puzzle with the budget that you can get an idea of on that first discussion but you can go into more detail on later on but you definitely get a feel for the type of budget they have through asking the questions i think what about you susie I, well, I do, I do think that you need, you definitely do need to have a ballpark. You kind of need to know where you are. Um, and I agree with you. We always say to people, is this a, a two-year house, a five-year house, a 10-year house, or a forever house? Because the design decisions and the, 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 sorry, the investment that you will make in a forever house is going to be entirely different to that, that you, something that you're going to live in for two years and then turn. Um, but I think we also say, also say to people, and clients often can be reluctant to give you an indication of their budget because they're terrified that you're going to spend up to it. But for me, it's really important. And we always say to people, you have to tell me whether I'm shopping at Harrods, Peter Jones or Ikea, because the problem is that further down the track, if you then show them the Harrods dream and they haven't got the money for it, they'll hate anything you show them thereafter. So it's just really important to kind of know. And the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that people don't know how much things cost. So we had a client recently who had you know a not inconsequential amount of money but it was just so mismatched with what she thought she was going to be able to achieve for that 
you know, she was talking about amazing murals and all sorts of incredible kind of five star finishes, which even though her budgets, as she kept telling me, were not anorexic, they were going to be nowhere near equal to what her expectations were. So you do, I think, you do need to have some sort of cash figure. Do you find that clients respond to that direct line of questioning or do they kind of hedge that money kind of conversation? I think they they can sometimes hedge the conversation. Sometimes they will basically outright lie to you <laughs> on the basis that, you know, we've just said, okay, you know, well, actually it can work both ways. Sometimes they'll tell you they've got X amount when they've got X plus Y. And other times they'll say they've got Y amount because they're showing off when actually they haven't really got that much. And also, as I said, there is this mismatch, I think, between people, because most people only do these sorts of projects once or twice in a lifetime. They've got no idea how much stuff costs. They really don't. See, that's interesting because I find, I mean, maybe I'm quite niche in where I work. I, 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 prob I work in the res residential sector, probably for a very typical type of client. And I think their budgets are very similar. So maybe that's why um, it's my, my clientele is not maybe as varied or, um, and yours is quite global as well, Susie, I think. So I, I think maybe because I kind of, I, I attract a certain type of client, maybe they do have quite um, a similar budget and they know what they're getting when they come to me. I, I don't know, maybe that's why. It might be slightly easier. What astonishes me is that when we work with commercial clients, quite often they have no idea either. And you think that if people are doing this for a living, developers and things, you think they'd have more of a clue. And actually, sometimes they're just as clueless. They have absolutely no, no idea how much things are going to cost. So they have these grandiose ideas and actually just haven't got the, the pounds, shillings and pence to, to back it up, which can be very disappointing for everybody. But anyway. The other thorny subject might be timing. How do you deal with that one? Yeah, this is a really important one. I, again, you, you learn this one as you go along. Um, you learn how to manage it better as well. Um, I had a client that took a year to find fabric for a tiny stool. And this was in my early days. And I would never now have allowed that to happen. I would have put a time limit on it. But I didn't, I didn't know that when I was doing it. I, I, I did it on a, on a fee basis and we hadn't found what she needed. And so we carried on until we found what she needed. And, you know, it's really important to put in an, a proposed end date and what you're going to cover within that scope. Um, and I found that I work quite often on an hourly rate as well, where clients have an indication of how many hours and how much of my time it's going to cost. Um, but when I'm working on an hourly rate, that sort of thing doesn't happen as much as well. Yeah, but also if, if the clients have got a particular end date of theirs in mind, I mean, that's the other thing you need to just be, um, be aware of is that if, if, for example, there's a, I don't know, let's say a 25th wedding anniversary coming up in 18 months time and they want to have a huge party in their new house, or one of their children is setting a significant set of exams. You know, I've got a client at the moment who's who's got a daughter who's studying for the 11 plus. So of course we had to get clear of their house to make sure that, you know, that this little girl could do her do, do her work un, undisturbed. And so that kind of thing can be really important. And, and quite often if they've got, again, unrealistic expectations about what can be achieved in their time frame, sometimes the way to get around that is to break that down into chunks so that you can say well we could do the principal rooms to get those ready for the party in time but perhaps we have to wait and do upstairs the following year um but i mean this is all the stuff this all comes back to what you find out when you take that all important brief because you can't come up with the kind of game plan for the project unless you have all this information clearly in your mind and that they know that you know what about then you mentioned earlier about the the professional team that might already have started on the project how important is identifying where that 
professional team is at or indeed when you come onto a project how have you got the responsibility to build that team yourself yeah so with that one if, if the if the project's already underway and they have a full professional team in place obviously you need to find out who who the protagonists are you know who's the architect who are the engineers who's the av people so that you kind of have a you can look them up again google them find out who it is you'll be working with um you also need to work out at that point what the architect has actually been hired to do because again, it can be very fuzzy, those that sort of that wiggly line that we talk about sometimes between the, the interior designer's responsibilities and the architect's responsibilities. So you need to find out, you know, what has he been contracted to do to make sure that you're not treading on toes. And perhaps, you know, you might need to sort of talk about the implications of that with the client. So for example, if the if the architect's down to design all the joinery, is that the right way to be splitting it? But I mean, that's probably a discussion that you would have later on further into the process. But again, you just need to understand exactly who's been asked to do what so far. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important point, Susie, because you can be brought in and when it isn't people that you're used to working with and the way that you know how to work and you know how they work and how they communicate and how they respond, um, and who is responsible for what is so critical in that whole setup because if something goes wrong or if the, and as and when there are always pressures in these situations you need to understand who's responsible for what park and who is going to take responsibility when there are problems in the in, in the whole in the build but it's not always terribly straightforward either because often the clients themselves don't understand what it is that they've asked the architect to do they don't understand where those gaps are so this is where it's it, it's just it's tricky and and obviously it can sometimes be the it might not be till you are appointed and you actually have a meeting with the architect in the first instance and you can actually talk about who's responsible for what and i know some architects in fact quite a few architects these days are producing responsibility matrix matrices matrices um where they actually show who's responsible for what and that means that the clients are kind of assured that they're not that there are a there are no gaps but b that they're not paying twice for something that's a really good point. And also it's 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 interesting because the definition of an architect could be so broad. It could be, do they do just the build? Do they do partly some interior design? You know, and, and the same for an interior um, designer or the same for a builder. Like all of those areas can actually in, expand into each other's territory. And it's it's understanding where that where that lies. Do you think that clients understand the right time to brief an interior designer? Uh, I think this is a question that we all grapple with. Generally, no. Um, we all complain bitterly that we're brought in too late almost all the time. And it's very refreshing when you are brought in at the beginning of a project because it just makes it so much easier. Yeah, I totally agree with Susie. It's rare that you're brought in right at the beginning with lots of time to plan and think about how they live and think about the layout properly. And yeah, it is, it is unusual, but then we're used to working in that way, I suppose, now, because the majority of the time you don't have that luxury. And Susie, you want to talk about the other stakeholders that might be involved in a project. What do you mean by that? Okay, so we always look at who else is going to be using the space. So typically you have the person who's commissioned you to do the job. You've got the person who's paying you. They're going to be an adult, maybe an adult couple, you know, but they're going to be, there's going to be a grown up in there somewhere, we hope. But then there, there are probably going to be children, there may be pets, there may be grandparents, if it's a, this is for a private client job, um, there may be 
you know, somebody that comes and stays from abroad for a month every summer. Um, there might be, you know, regular sleepovers that have to be accommodated. There might be an elderly cleaning lady who's been with the family for 35 years and can no longer carry the hoover upstairs. Um, but it's all those things that you need to take into consideration when you're taking a brief, because only then can you genuinely design for all the stakeholders. And the, the same is, is strictly, is very true also of commercial projects. Um, and even actually with developers, you have to think about who the stakeholders are. You know, the estate agent that comes in to show people around the house, can they navigate the lighting properly? Is it going to be easy for them to really show that property off to its, to its best advantage? Um, how easy are things going to be to maintain going forward? Um, and in things like restaurants and hotels, you'd be talking to, you'd be talking to the chef, the waitresses, the head of floor staff, um, the head of housekeeping, all those people. All right then, Julia, where would you take the first meeting? Would you do it with the client on site, at your studio, on Zoom these days? What, what's your preferred kind of way of working? I do like to go to the site, even if it's a building site. Um, if that's possible as Susie said previously it's not always possible to do that um, and yeah lots is happening on zoom right now I mean there have there've been uh, different scenarios where I might have met a client previously and seen the house and then gone to do the tour you know to do more cons consultations via zoom but then there have been new clients where I haven't seen their property before and we've done just virtual consultations because of the situation so yeah, I think if if you if you you're used to going into many different people's homes, it, it's not such a big transition to do it via Zoom. There are certain things that you might that are obviously easier when you're at the home, but but I think it's not a, it's not a bad it's not a bad option doing it by Zoom. And I've had them take me around their home as well, so it can work. Do you do you feel that you get a genuine sense of the space doing it on Zoom? You know, when you walk into a room, you can see the volume and you can see the ceiling height and you can see the proportions and the size of the window and things. And I just wonder whether some of that gets a bit lost when you're trying to do things in a virtual way. Yeah, then there's definitely a, a, an element that isn't as easy to, to see and the, the perception of the space and those little corners. You're right, you're right. There is there is an element that's harder, but it's a, it's not a bad, it's not a bad tool in, you know, as far as you can take it and as far as you can it's not it's not too bad are you finding that clients are doing sort of virtual walkthroughs where they're carrying their iphone through the house to show you what they've got these days yeah i've had a lot of that i've had a lot of that um alongside plans and i guess you need to use more um tools together at the same time so you need to back that up with looking at the plans and you know i've got lots of screens open at the same time when i'm talking to clients to look at oh right let's see the dimensions of that and can you just zoom in on that corner and you know it's it's adjusting but um yeah i i, I don't know i haven't found it so too tricky it's been okay thank goodness we've got all the technology what on earth would we have done 10 years ago i know it's so true and then what sort of non-verbal clues are you really looking out for? And I guess how important is what the client doesn't say as, a, as opposed to what they do say? Yeah, I think I think it's, it is very interesting what they don't say. And especially when you're building the relationship. So you don't know the client. The client doesn't know you right at the beginning. And when you're presenting concepts and inspiration and you know, you're taking a few samples to get a feel for a few things that are critical decisions, you can really gauge how they respond to that, even if they don't say anything. Quite often, because they don't know you, they won't they won't know how to say 
no, I don't like it. So you, you, but you, you get so used to that reaction of, oh, there's a pause and they don't say anything in reaction to something. And you can, you can tell actually a lot by what they're not saying. Um, but then once you get to know them more, I think they're normally more open to saying, no, I don't like that and being more direct about it. And, you know, less, all the niceties don't have to have to be involved as you go down the relationship with them and they trust you more. We also, I also was, like to have a good look at what people are wearing. I think you can you can tell a lot about a client from their shoes. Are they quite reserved? Are they quite conventional? You know, you can tell a lot from the way people dress, even if even if the house is trashed or it's something that they've, you know, because often when you go to look around a house with someone for the first time or, or via, via Zoom, you're not seeing them in their home, you're seeing them in someone else's home. So you're not getting any visual clues from their existing environment. The only thing you've got to go on is how they look. So it could be their jewellery, the way they do their hair, you know, a lot of a lot of information. And again, Julia, you were so right. It's all about the body language. It's the way it's that it's that pause. It's the way people shut down when you when you when you show them something that they clearly don't like. Yeah. But it's interesting sometimes I feel that if they're showing you inspiration that they like and the way that they dressed is quite um, brave and daring and flamboyant and sometimes I find there's a mismatch between what they actually show you that they like and it's not as flamboyant and, and daring as, as the way they present themselves and I think that's in a way an interesting scenario because then you know that you can maybe push them a little bit more um, to explore that and you could maybe be a bit braver with some of the design decisions as well. Yeah no good point. Do you actually come out and ask them where they shop or what artists they like or what their favourite colour is even? Yeah. Yeah, all of those questions can, can crop up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Although sometimes colour is a, is a tricky one because, you know, if they say, oh, oh, I don't like blue, but then you can often show them like a blue green or a blue grey. And, you know, there you go. They love blue. So it, they, some of, sometimes that's a, that's a very generic question to ask about what colours you like. But I still sometimes ask it just to gauge what, what's going on and what, they, what they're thinking. One that we often ask is what's their favorite hotel? Because that gives you a that gives you a real sense of, of you know what you know what is the most wonderful hotel they've ever stayed in and why. Um, because that's an interior and it's often quite a flamboyant interior, perhaps more flamboyant than their home would be, but it really kind of that can really ground, give you a grounding for their style, I find. I think it, it more revolves around a discussion with them showing me their inspiration and I do I tend to ask them if they can to sh to pick out some inspiration they love and it could be anything it doesn't have to mirror what their room is going to look like it could just be I love this like you said Susie a hotel or I love this restaurant it could be a piece of art it could be um you know a museum that they visited that they love the floor and it doesn't mean that you're going to recreate the floor but it gives you a vibe and a feel for what direction you could take the brief other other questions we ask i suppose that because that's that's more about the kind of visual side of taking the brief isn't it if we if we if we divide it and say okay there's the kind of functional side and the visual side those, those tend to be more about the material palette and the, the colors and things but actually at this early stage we're more likely to be asking a lot of lifestyle questions too so often often clients will come and you'll say well have what have you thought about doing in this room and they'll go i want it to be blue and I'm scratching my head going, no, no, no. I mean, who's going to sleep in here? You know, it's, it's completely different. And what are they going to do? And does it need a study area? And is there anything that needs to be stored? And, you know, how much storage space will be required? All that kind of stuff. Um, the questions, all those critical questions like, you know, how many people do you feed on a daily basis? How, do you, how often do you entertain? How many do you entertain for? You know, where do you like to eat breakfast? 
what do you like to eat for breakfast? Do you tend to plate up food or do you put bowls in the middle of the table and everybody help themselves? All those things are going to have an impact and a bearing on what you eventually end up with from the space planning and also to an extent the, the, the way the, the palettes will evolve. Yeah, that's true, actually. And it's almost on a room by room basis that I would go through that with a client. So if we're talking about the dining area, it's people often think, oh, I mean, because it's sort of like how big a table do we need in this dining in this dining room? So how many people do you entertain? How often do you entertain? What sort of entertaining do you do? Do you do quite casual entertaining? Or do you like to just put the food out? You know, I mean, getting to the grips of their lifestyle is so important. Do you have guests? from abroad do, how often do people stay over how many people what sort of ages are they so yes it is I guess on a room by room basis really nailing down into how they're living on a day-to-day -day and, and almost on a yearly basis it's like what is your day-to-day -day? and then what does a typical year look like for you a life in the home yeah no good point it seems to me as well that what you're doing is you're you're moving the conversation forward so the brief actually is evolving over several conversations several meetings where you can ask different questions and build a complete picture of what you're going to do and what the client is actually telling you yeah i think that's true i mean i think the the, the whole process for clients can be quite overwhelming and i think you often have to do it over a succession of meetings in order to get all the information that you need and sometimes you might go to them with an initial space plan and you might be talking about a room and they'll suddenly there'll be a light bulb moment and they'll suddenly go oh my goodness but where am I going to put Auntie Joan so suddenly the study has to double up as a guest bedroom as well or I mean that's probably not a very good example but you know what I mean um, and so you 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 will be getting more and more information the more meetings you have with them and the more that you're showing them stuff the more information you'll be gleaning from them but also the more their own ideas will be developing because I think people often because they don't know what's available they don't really know what's possible so they will become more ambitious for their own project as the project evolves. Do you know when you know enough to put a fee proposal together? Well I think I give an indication right from the beginning because they want to know like that's one of the first questions the client will ask you is you know how do the fees work and and you know, so yes, I think right from the beginning, I think you have to be comfortable talking about that. And once you have then understood that brief and what, you know, I think it's a question of what rooms are they doing? You know, what building work are they doing? How, how much are they doing? How much are they gonna take on? And then I think you do have to be very clear on what the budget is and how it breaks down and what the options are. So that if they want to take it in stages and do this part now and this part later, that, that has to be very clearly done very near the beginning yeah we would normally produce a fee proposal after that first meeting um, and if there's not enough information to give a full proposal at that point we would often sort of say well let's do a let's we'll give you a fee to do a sort of feasibility study so we'll actually charge you a fee to develop that brief and then once we fully understand the scope of the project then we can give you a full fee for, for everything that you need um you know if it's possible but the other thing we also do in our fee proposals is we restate the brief so i will write you know usually a page um, of information about what they've told me and that gives them a chance right from the off to say well actually that's not quite right or i've changed my mind or oh i forgot to tell you this or whatever it might be yeah and i think i've done that before as well susie where there isn't enough information and they're kind of looking to you to provide that information so then you pr produce um a you know a toolkit of what each room and what each space sh should be about what it should contain and it's really detailed right down to um there's going to be this many lamps <laughs> and sometimes you need to actually do that because they want to see the ingredients and how much it is going to cost them 
like literally detailed out so they can make decisions. And what you have then is a, a kind of fixed point, a jumping off point, if you like, from which the brief itself will evolve and change and develop over time. Yeah, and that, that's a key part of it. It's always evolving and developing and, you know, just changing one element of it will have will mean you might have to change many other elements. You know, if you've agreed on, I don't know, a dining table and then you change that and you change the material and you, you know, then you're going to change the, the chairs and you might change other elements of the whole design as well. And then one room links to another room. So it's all it's all important that it is an iterative process and it does evolve and it evolves according to, you know, might be what's what's available and timeline and timelines for manufacturers and all sorts of things can contribute to changes in decisions. So Susie, what do designers mean when they talk about freezing the brief? This, I think, is something that came out of freezing drawings. Um, it means that you've got to a point at which you say to the client, okay, we will make no further changes beyond this point. You can't get into the detail of the design until, until you, you actually know what it is you're designing. So we, we say to the clients, okay, at this point, we will freeze the brief. We'll freeze. We'll freeze the drawings. We're going to freeze the design concept. We're going to freeze the materials palette. Whatever it is, those decisions that we've taken up to that point, and that allows us to jump off. It doesn't mean that you can't change things further down the track, but it just does mean that you know you've kind of said, "Well, actually, no, that's frozen. Now we know what we're doing. Now the brief is fully developed. We can proceed." That must help clients because I'm sure. Um, they like the reassurance to know that some things will stay as fixed points as well for them. I think it's really crucial too because otherwise the initial design phase can just go on forever and what happens is if you've got a fixed endpoint for the project and you know you have to be on site in, in a particular time in order to achieve that, if the design process goes on for too long it's just eating into your build time. So it's just really important to sort of say you know we're going to devote this much time to this, we make those decisions and we stop there. How easy is that to uh, to to do, Julia? Well, I think it depends. If you've communicated it right at the beginning that that's actually something that you need to to um, to do, and that you might need to do that part way through the project, I think that's a, then it's not such a big challenge. Um, and I think the client appreciates you being in control of that, and you know, for their budget, that's going to be a lot better as well. So. It, you know, it depends. It depends on the client, but I think typically it's it's um, it's seen as a positive thing. Yeah, again, I think the clients again feel as though you're the one with the safe pair of hands, so I think they quite appreciate it. And we always talk about freezing freezing the drawings and the, and the design concept in our fee proposal. Yeah, exactly. Right from the beginning, totally. And also, you can you can freeze parts of it and elements of it as well. You don't have to freeze the whole thing. I've heard it called a design chill. Or part freeze. <laughs> yeah, part freeze, a semi-fredo, a design semi-fredo. Semi yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that <laughs> okay. Um, meetings then. Who should be there? Who can make decisions? Who's actually paying? That's a great question. I guess it, you'd find that out from your initial, you know, questioning of who is this for and stakeholders. So who are the key stakeholders? Um, and I guess you get an idea from the initial conversation if you're understanding if it's if it's a family who who's involved from the family or if it's a commercial project who is calling you and how that company is set up. Um, and obviously, you know, you need the key people there at different times. So sometimes you don't need the architect and the builder and everyone involved. Sometimes you do need those one-on-ones with the client. Um, and then there are other meetings where you might, 
you know, might need the whole team there, but then you need to be very clear about what the agenda is and why you're all meeting so it doesn't go off on a tangent. What's your take on that, Susie? Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with all of that. And the only other thing I think I would probably add is that it's important when you're taking the brief to establish who's actually paying and therefore who's able to take decisions. What you want to avoid is a situation where somebody is doing all the kind of the legwork on the design and the person who's actually going to be making the transfer into your bank account at the end of the day turns around and says, I don't want, I don't want to pay for that. You know, so you just have to be very, 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 very clear about, you know, who is available, who is allowed to make to make cost based. It's usually about money, cost based decisions. Indeed, indeed. OK, so I'm coming to the last question here. What is the one secret tip you would give designers about taking a client brief? Who wants to go first? Okay, this is just a bit of a silly one. This is just, and assuming that they are people that um, celebrate Christmas, we always ask them where they're going to put the Christmas tree. And for some reason, it's a question that clients seem to find delightful. It's just something they love to think about. Oh, where am I going to put the Christmas tree? It really pleases them. I'm going to go in with more of a general advice on, on the communication side, but I think the power of the pause is really important, that you, you pause when you're talking to them and when you're taking the brief to listen as much as possible to what's, what's actually happening in that pause. That's a brilliant tip, brilliant. Listen, don't talk, like it. Thanks very much. So before we close, we often like to ask our guests to share a funny experience that has happened to them in their career as an interior designer. Julia, do you have a story that you would like to tell us today? Yes, I do have a story. So this involves me when I was staging a property. So I was, I was asked to actually stage a client's house for sale. And it was in a quite a trendy area of London where there's a Planet Organic nearby. And let's say there's probably a quite high proportion of vegetarians. And this is relevant to what I'm going to say later. And um, she invited me in and we were talking about what changes we could implement to make it more saleable and to appeal to the target market. And I noticed that there was a quite interesting display of taxidermy in the property, which maybe wouldn't have appealed to the target market. So we had some owls and some butterflies. And yes, it was very interesting. But what was interesting is that the client didn't think that those would be something that would maybe affect the sale of the property or that the target market might be in, not be interested in those so yeah that's my amusing story for you well that's a classic case of not considering the stakeholder isn't it yes yes i like the way you brought it back to the stakeholder <laughs> what i want to know is were you able to persuade her to take the taxidermy out Yes, absolutely. And now it's become a running joke because we're friends and she always talks to me about the stuffed owls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent. Thanks very much. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. Some great advice in there. Hope everybody was making furious notes. Yes, it was really wonderful to have you on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your breadth and depth of experience with us. You can find the Interior Design Business on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on on-demand services everywhere. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production.